All right, let's start. This is June 13th, 2022. This is the beginning of season 13, episode one of the Soybean Pest Podcast. Good morning, Aaron. Hi, Matt. It's the you? 13th and the beginning of the 13th season. Is that an omen? Oh, that's amazing timing. It w- that's why we were waiting. That's why we waited this long to start podcasting again. Our follower was getting anxious if we were going to resume activity. What was he going to listen to? <laughs> the other 3 million podcasts that have uh, emerged since COVID. Yeah, right. Oh, everybody's got like three podcasts now. You and can't two- just do one now. You've got to do multiple ones. Yeah, one of them has to be about Stranger Things. Mm. I like that the Stranger... Uh, spoiler alert. Can I give a little spoiler? The uh, Black Widow gets a shout out in Stranger Things. Did she you does. see did you see that one coming, though? I mean, it was kind of foreshadowed pretty early on. There was spiders sprinkled throughout, yeah. Yeah. Didn't we have somebody that was raising black widows once? Wasn't your technician raising black widows? Yeah, we found a black widow in our Kwanzaa where we store some equipment uh, south of Ames. Shouldn't have been there. They're not supposed to be able to survive this area. But, yeah, he kept it in a container and she had some nice little spiderlings and she lived for quite a while. To keep the spider talk going, somebody asked me at an event if, um, uh, what's the one with the fiddle on the back? Brown recluse are found in Iowa. And I told them that, yes, they have been reported here. But if I recall, the story was that they, they thought that the brown recluses that were found on campus had been transported uh, involuntarily from Texas with some students that were, you know, coming to school. I don't know if you get any questions or comments or have run into that other deadly poisonous spider to North America. I think there's a lot of, I don't know if there's any voluntary spider moving, but I don't think if they ever want to move, but yeah, I think there's some accidental invaders. People move and uh, spiders are part of, uh, part of that what are you gonna do like brown marmorated stink bug like spotted lantern fly yeah that's that's how things get moved around yeah well people yeah come on people knock it off stop moving those insects around (laughs) um let's get right into it and talk about uh, (laughs) let's get right into it after (laughs) after about a four minute preamble that's been four minutes that goes by so quickly uh i know it's june but uh, give us an update on your uh, roundup of overwintering success. I know you do an article earlier in the spring on overwintering success for bean leaf beetles. And, and if what you predicted then is matching what you're seeing now. Yeah, with the help of some degree day estimates from Larry Pedigo and his group back in the day, they estimated overwintering survival of bean leaf beetle. And that's because they overwinter above ground and residue. And so they're more susceptible to severe air temperature. And the last few winters have been pretty harsh for bean leaf beetle. And based on the equation that Dr. Pedigo and his group um, made up, we estimated anywhere from about 58% mortality in the southernmost counties uh, up to about 97% mortality in some of the more northern counties at top third tier. And so we were expecting, you know, uh, like many years, not to see a lot. 
but it was sort of a weird spring in which planting was really delayed or strung out and there wasn't a lot of things to feed on. And so some of the first emerging soybean fields um, had seen a lot of activity. So we have a couple of efficacy evaluations at Johnson Farm, which is just south of Ames. That's where our, uh, our Quonset is stored. And um, that we, Quonset filled with the black widows and brown recluses and, and raccoons mostly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, we wanted to be the first soybeans emerged on the farm. And we were, even though it was fairly late planted and the defoliation on V1, V2 beans is pretty incredible. They look really raggedy and yeah. they look pretty beat up, which is, I mean, it's kind of shocking to see that amount of defoliation on such a small plant. Um, even those treatments that had insecticidal um, uh, coatings on them. But um, just like last year, we had the same thing happen and the beans quickly outgrew the defoliation once things warmed up. Yeah, so my my memory of the Pedigo articles about defoliation is that early season defoliation is uh, re- the plant can recover from it. Yeah, in a way that uh, maybe they're not as resilient later in the season, uh, but it takes a lot of defoliation now to um, have an impact in yield come the fall. Is well, my observation is you can have a lot of defoliators, and if they're feeding on leaves, it's really hard to reach a point of economic concern. I think the the issue for me is, one, if they're vectoring bean pod model virus, that's a totally different situation. Mm-hmm. And then when the second generation is active, it's in September, and they're causing direct injury to pods. So that's also something that's it's a little bit different um, yeah. type of mindset. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the target of the the feeding varies throughout the season. It's not just defoliation. Yeah, um, but high numbers now from overwintering generally is a heads up for higher numbers for first and second uh, adult activity later in the summer. So that's going to need some scouting to time when that second generation emerges. If we're going to think about spraying an insecticide. Yeah, right? if you, I mean, not only bean leaf beetles, but there's uh, stink bugs. Sometimes there's caterpillars, um, other things that will be causing direct injury. So it is just a really important time to scout for direct injury, no matter what the pest is. Okay. Uh, do we wrap that one up? Any more bean leaf beetle talk for the people? Um, I saw an amazing variety of elytra, the four wing um, colors and patterns because usually you think about the like the black triangle right behind the prothorax or I kind of call it the neck and that's usually pretty consistent no matter what but there's some variation in wing color and the four rectangles that are usually diagnostic for bean leaf beetle Mm -hmm. and just some scouting out this year I've seen yellow tan brown orange red I mean it's just kind of like they're like a bag of skittles it's like a rainbow (laughs) and sometimes the those four rectangles are missing or sometimes they almost look like they were bleeding you know Mm -hmm. they weren't distinct they were kind of like bleeding into each other and so I don't think people would mistake bean leaf beetle for something else but I did notice quite a variety of the you know the usual diagnostic for the wings this year world's worst flavor of skittles (laughs) that's for sure so uh despite that variation in the the patterns on the elytra that triangle that black triangle is always present 
I've, I've always seen that this year. Yeah, it's, it's always there, but some of the other features may or may not be there. The black triangle of defoliation. Yeah. Um, one other thing I might add is uh, working with a group that's interested in some alternative crops, one of them being mung bean, they've seen quite a bit of what they think is bean leaf beetle defoliation. And they had two plantings, uh, one uh, emerging earlier than the second, and that one got hit pretty hard by bean leaf beetles. And I uh, thought, wow, that sounds very similar to what I would have expected for soybeans. You know, that the earliest emerging plots of beans, soybeans, would be hit first by that overwintering generation of bean leaf beetles, just because there's nothing for them to feed on. You know? and, and this has been a really remarkable spring in terms of what you described as late planting. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, you know, whatever legumes are out there, you know, they're looking for something to eat. And then as soon as something else comes up, they move on and, and that impact is kind of dispersed. You know, it's not as concentrated. Um, the defoliation is not as concentrated as other plots start to emerge. Yeah, and if, and if an area has an established alfalfa or an alfalfa mix, of course, that, that legume is going to be attractive as well. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on. Any LEP updates? Uh, it's been quite an interesting year for, for migratory moths uh, here in the Corn Belt, especially Iowa. That includes black cutworm and true armyworm. Of course, our... Uh, our education specialist, Ashley Dean, coordinates a moth trapping network for Iowa. And we had really good participation this year, although the numbers were kind of all over the place. And it just sort of reinforces that concept of like more, more traps, more better, because there were certain areas where the adult traps, trap counts were not high, but they saw quite a bit of larval activity in cover crops, especially rye that were either not properly terminated or really slow to be burned down or terminated. And then in some fields where there weren't rye cover crops, but they were, I would consider them kind of weedy. And so they were, you know, green, um, favorable egg laying sites for some of that. And so we've been seeing some stand loss in corn, but also in soybean, which is maybe not as typical. And so what's what's the uh, LEP causing the stand losses in soybeans? True armyworm and black cutworm. Okay. And so I think they would normally prefer to feed on corn, but, you know, if the, if the female deposits eggs and the larvae hatch and they're hungry, they're going to feed on pretty much whatever they can. And so if soybean happens to be there, um, you know, they're going to be doing some feeding on some of the seedlings. And so the issue that we've been hearing about, especially with those folks that have high residue, or maybe they have rye that is terminated, but sort of still covering the ground, almost like a, like a rye carpet mat, is that the armyworms and cutworms hide under there during the day. And so when people are scouting, they're not seeing them on the corner of the soybean, but then they're obviously seeing some sort of defoliation. They're seeing some sort of injury. And so getting in, into cracks and crevices and digging under the residue is going to be really important this year. So a couple of years, oh, not a couple of years ago, this might be 10 years ago, uh, we had some soybean plots uh, decimated by dingy cutworm. I'm curious if, because you mentioned black cutworm, I'm wondering if you're also seeing some variety in, in the types of cutworms that you're seeing. 
Yeah, I have not heard specifically about dingy. It would be a species that, that could overwinter here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have seen some really nice photos of variegated cutworm, which is another it's it's a species that stands out to me just because of the patterns on the on the back of the caterpillar. But um, that is a species that overwinters here too and has been doing some feeding as well. So there's a mix of uh, populations that can withstand our Iowa winters, and then there's some that have to move in here later in the season. So it's it's really hard. Like when and where they become active is yeah. all over the place. And the one take home message about you know cover crops is that. You know, if not terminated well, uh, they can be a, an attractant. Is that fair to say for these migrating leps? Yeah, concentrating. So them. yeah, yeah. And so with the with the cold, wet spring, some of the herbicides don't act normally, or they might be slow acting. Or oh. you know, oh. if fields were really wet, they didn't get yeah. a chance to terminate maybe when they wanted to, and so you still have some of the rye that's green at the same time as, as planting. And so you basically have a green bridge. And so, yeah, ideally for pest management, you'd like the biggest gap possible, but sometimes that's not practical. And so that's where some people are running into problems. And and not to get too technical or inside baseball, but you use the term green bridge. And I, I typically think of a green bridge as a bridge between uh, fall and spring. Yeah. And, um, and I'm wondering um, if there's any evidence, if you know of any evidence, because you mentioned dingy and variegated as being species that can overwinter here. And if there's any evidence that those uh, uh, overwintering leps are uh, benefiting from a green bridge when it comes to uh, cover crops. I don't know if, if we have data generated for that. Uh, the few projects that I've been involved with the caterpillar populations were so low, we weren't able to make any, you know, hmm. uh, basically summaries or observations from that. But but you've been involved in some of the cover crop research in the past, haven't you? Yeah. And like you, the like what you just described, the numbers are often so low that it's it's hard to yeah. make firm conclusions. Uh, I mean, the general impression, the general result uh, is yeah, if you're using a cover crop and you don't manage it well, and by well I mean remove it a couple of weeks before planting, you're going to increase your likelihood of uh, some of the that lep damage. And yeah. in our studies, it was uh, yeah, I think it was the army worm uh, and the cutworm that were um, those migrating. It was the migrating leps that were the the source of what injury we saw. Um, yeah, and I am you know. Not to spend too much time on this, but uh, you know, it's really hard to set up a, an on-farm experiment where you control for all those factors. Like you have the overwintering uh, lep present, and then you have the migrating one, and then you've got plots with and without the cover crops, and you then vary the length of time the cover crop is present. Uh, yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not always possible to do that, and so. It comes down to what we're having right now, which is a bit of a conversation about, well, what's the risk? And then, you know, having to scout every year to confirm that, you know, you're within the bounds of what's uh, likely to happen. Um, It's probably not the most satisfying conversation for a farmer or a scouter, but uh, it's it's within the limits of what we understand, you know, what what data we have. 
Yeah, and I just don't know enough about the biology of some of the armyworms and cutworms that can survive in the corn belt. I, I don't know where they're spending the winter, but, um, you know, ideally it'd be the same problem is that uh, the females are looking for places where there's green vegetation for their offspring to feed on. So, you know, weed control is really important as well within and around fields. And also the cover crop termination is really, really important. Yeah. I mean, the one thing we didn't see a lot of, if I remember right, from the work that we did with Mike Dunbar and Aaron Gaffin was uh, the field edges being a, a source of these labs. Like there would be some uh, a, a, a defoliation closer to the edge of a field where there was a grassy strip or something, but that wasn't enough to you know, explain, well, it, did, it wasn't enough to cause damage further into the field. There's a certain limit to how far. Now, armyworm, of course, if they get large enough numbers, they earn their name armyworm by marching through a field. But uh, those are more, um, those are more dependent upon how many armyworms you have, you know, kind of arriving in one place and having, you know, an outbreak. But yeah, they're, they're quite mobile. And another Another caterpillar that's uh, becoming active right now is common stock borer. And normally we think of it as a corn pest, but um, it tends to, to not be as mobile. And so it sort of reinfests the same area year after year. And so if you are in a corn soybean rotation and you have problems with stock borer, you could see the stock borers attempting to move to soybean as well. So it's another reason to manage your brome and other types of grasses alongside fields because that's where they overwinter. What does manage mean in that case? Does it mean cutting it? Yeah, usually you, you'd, you'd mow it or uh, burn it down so that they don't have a place to overwinter like in the fall and mm -hmm. so that um, they don't have a chance to resume development and then move to the crop in the spring because they'll just kind of go back and forth. And so you just like the grass control would be important. If that happens to be an area that's persistently infested, yeah, and I know many farmers have grass waterways that are elements of their water management that cannot be burned or right. uh, mowed. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a certain amount of like, well, you, risk that you have to uh, have in a farm if you're trying to manage all the facets that affect your um, your crop production. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's probably, again, not the most satisfying thing to hear, but I'm pretty sure extension entomologists are required at every talk to say, yeah, well, you're going to have to scout. And Erin is shaking her head vigorously at that one with a, yeah. <laughs> with a smile on her face. I don't know if you can over-scout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has anybody ever scouted too much? Um, well, we have spent, I think, over six minutes on lep talk and... Have we said everything that we need to say for this time of year on LEPS? At least at this point, I've I've heard um, some rumblings about some of the other caterpillars that we would normally see in soybean, like green clover worm, uh, soybean looper, and some of the other loopers in soybean right now. They're very small. So that happens every year. Um, it just kind of depends on, I think, as you said, just like the number of them. So if you're sweeping, which is, is hard to do right now because most soybeans are pretty small, but yeah. later in the season as you're sweeping, you almost always catch a potpourri of green caterpillars. So that's pretty typical. Just something I, to keep your eye out for. Yeah, probably the worst smelling of the potpourris is the lep-infused one. 
Yeah, it's no good, um, especially if you're sweeping really hard and you smash them. Yeah. Oh, oh and um, I don't know if you remember the thistle caterpillar apocalypse of 2019. Yes. Um, you know, this yeah. is a time when we would first start seeing thistle caterpillars in the field is kind of like V3, V6. I have not seen one myself. We don't know what kind of year it will be for this migratory pest, but keep your eyes peeled. It seems premature to talk about V3, V6. Are, are a lot of beans getting to that point? It's it's pretty asynchronous. So there's some some uh, fields where they did get a chance to plant early. Maybe they even opted to plant before corn just for whatever okay. reason. So there's some that are a little bit bigger, you know, approaching V3, V4. There are some that are just kind of cracking the ground surface. So it's sort of all over the place. Um, but, you know, we are approaching the one of the longest days of the year. And so that's a nice trigger for things yeah. to like, hey, I want to make a flower. And and we're at the start of a uh, continental heat wave. Oh, man. That is like somebody turned the heat switch on because it was beautiful on Saturday and beautiful for sitting outside and not sweating. And now the heat is hitting us. It's going to be 90 plus throughout this week. So the heat index is no joke this week with the humidity. Be careful, people. But it's kind of prime plant growing. Get the heat units and. Well, I think they do best when it's hot during the day, but then when they get some relief at night, I don't know if we're going to get that type of relief. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, now we're talking, now we're, uh, we're uh, bleeding into uh, the soybean meteorological podcast talk, and that's a little outside our realm. And we've been at this for over 20 minutes. Let's wrap this, let's wrap up. Season 13's inaugural episode with a little, uh, let's have some shameless self-promotion. You got any upcoming field days or events that you want to plug to the people? Well, I do have a number of events around the state, particularly at research farms. Uh, Ashley and I are coordinating seven corn rootworm field days. So even though this is the Soybean Pest Podcast, um, we have... um, dedicated some time to corn rootworm management with some demos, especially with uh, some of the new products that are being released for corn rootworm. So uh, we're going to be hitting the road um, starting June 29th and going all the way till August 4th. So just driving all over the place. Good luck. Yeah. And uh, I have one shameless self-promotion. June 25th is the, is this the fifth or the sixth? Uh, annual pollinator fest at Ryman Gardens, where many of us at Iowa State who work in the area of pollinator conservation or just general uh, study of their biology and ecology will be presenting our findings, uh, educational uh, booths to talk more about these wonderful critters. We'll also have a booth that will feature honey tasting, and we're going to taste the honey that uh, Iowa State has produced not only through our Hort Farm, which is kind of a standard classic flavor in, uh, comprised of clover and soybean nectar, but we're also going to allow uh, participants, if they so choose, to taste our prairie strip honey. And this is honey that was produced, thanks in part by Randall Cass and a group of uh, undergraduate students who are interested in how honeybees might use prairie strips 
a conservation practice developed here at Iowa State University as a source of forage. And we've confirmed that, yeah, they do. It improves their uh, productivity. And we just got some data back that shows that, yeah, the honey that is produced at these farms is made from a blend of nectars derived from plants in the prairie strips, which explains what a lot of people say when they taste it. Say, yeah, it's a different tasting honey and different in a good way, not different in a bad way. So you'll get a chance to decide for yourself just how different prairie strip honey is. June 25th, Ryman Gardens, Ames, 10 to 2. Be there. Looking forward Bring to Bring your scouts. Bring your scouts, yeah. All the scouts, they get uh, a badge uh, that they can check off by going through a bunch of activities there at Ryman Gardens. All right, did we do it, Aaron? I think we did it, and nothing really bad happened. So I don't know about this 13th thing, but maybe it's just, a, I don't know, someone's bad idea. Knock on some wood. Is that, are scientists, should scientists feed into superstitions? Maybe uh, a little bit. Uh, uh, okay. All right. Good to see you. Yep. See you next week. Bye. Bye.